you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. With the very latest on COVID-19, joining us from Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in L.A., the co-chair of emergency medicine, Dr. Sam Torbati. Dr. Torbati, a very good Friday morning to you. Good Friday morning to you too, Larry. We hear from Dr. Ferrer, L.A. County Public Health, that Omicron has peaked. We have several more weeks of Omicron cases that well, we expect to gradually decline. But what are you seeing at Cedars? We're seeing uh, pretty much the same thing. It, uh, our data in the ER and the medical center show that uh, Omicron peaked about a week or so, a week or two ago and we're gently beginning to see less and less. So we're very optimistic that we can, they're on the back end of the curve and will continue to pull through this wave. So how, how is that affecting staff, which I know at every hospital has been overworked and, and stressed dealing with this, particularly with so many employees out with positive COVID tests or sick with COVID? Are, are, you, are you seeing a lot of those employees coming back to Cedars along with the decline in patients? Sure. The, uh, the impact was significant. Um, staff, uh, physicians, everybody was being affected and they had to stay home during their isolation period. Now they're coming back. Um, it, it's not over because the Omicron is still here and it's highly contagious. But it's, uh, it's, it's much better now than it was uh, you know, several weeks ago. We're in a much better position. All right, that's good to hear. Well, let's talk about this uh, this subvariant BA.2 of, of Omicron. We have a few of these cases that have been identified. I know it's being watched, but it's not considered a variant of concern yet by the World Health Organization. Uh, what do we know about BA.2? So absolutely fascinating, um, and again, not surprising that this virus, just like all other viruses, continues to mutate, trying to get a survival advantage. Um, it appears to be closely related. It's uh, to the original Omicron variant that was called BA1. This one is called BA2, and uh, it's being watched very, very carefully as it uh, is now being detected all throughout the world. Um, I just read a report about four cases being reported here in Los Angeles. So over 40 countries or so have reported it. The data is early. Just We just don't have all the information, but there's some initial reports that it may be even more contagious in terms of how easily it could be spread than the original Omicron. And from an uh, evolutionary standpoint, this would give this 
variant a survival advantage and potentially you know, could cause it to take over in the upcoming weeks or months. But it's a little too early to know right now which way it's going to go. With it being so closely related to BA1, could you assume that for those who've had BA1 or Omicron as we've known it, that it's unlikely that they would be vulnerable um, within the next few weeks to BA2? From a... um from a theoretical standpoint, yes. Um, since it is so closely related, uh, we are hopeful that um, people who've had uh, Omicron uh, will have immunity against it. Uh, but it's just too early to know. And this, uh, this virus continues to surprise us. I think we need a little bit more time to be sure. You were talking about how this isn't surprising that we see all these sublineages from different variants. Um, and I was saying that Delta had more than 200 sublineages before Omicron came along. So this this apparently is, is, is extremely common. Very, very common. Um, viruses continue to, to mutate. The mutations are basically errors in how they um, continue to... Um, to replicate and how the genetic code gets replicated. Most of the time, these errors result in in death of the virus, but occasionally the errors result in something that gives the virus a survival benefit. And when there is a survival benefit in a mutation, that will take off. And again, we see this with every virus. And so no surprise at all that this is happening. And what would cause the World Health Organization to label it a variant of concern? Is that, is that just the rapidity of spread and um, severity of cases? Or you, does, something, does something even before that happened cause the World Health Organization to label a variant that way? Yeah, they use very specific criteria. You know, the WHO monitors, as does the CDC, all of these variants. Um, these uh, the, the surveillance for COVID-19 and SARS-CoV has, has been more aggressive and more publicized. But these are common practices that occur. And at some point, if it appears that a virus uh, is one that could potentially result in, in higher infectious rates, but more importantly, uh, disease rates, because just because it's more infectious doesn't mean it's going to cause more disease, um, then, it, then it becomes something we need to think about. And so there's a lot of things right now, a lot of questions that are being raised. You know, will it cause more disease? Will it cause more severe disease? Are people immune? What about our therapies? Will they continue to work? Monoclonal therapy, the oral antivirals. All of these questions are being asked and are being looked at scientifically in laboratories. And as data comes out, if indeed this, this new subvariant takes over, we'll have more real-world data to, to back up and have more information for the public. So we've hit the peak of Omicron, but we still have high numbers, and this decline is going to be gradual. What do you think we're going to see over the next week or two in terms of, of hospitalizations and deaths? Well, you know, as we look at the data, um, the, unfortunately, the, the number of deaths is, is climbing, um, even though the total number of cases are going down. And that reflects the fact that there's a big time lag from when infection occurs until patients that are either unvaccinated or those who are severely immunocompromised 
um, end up succumbing to complications of this disease. And so um, we continue to have many patients in hospitals, you know, um, over 4,000 in Los Angeles County alone. And mortality, unfortunately, the numbers will continue to go up. So, uh, again, you know, it's great that we're doing better. Um, You know, my heart still bleeds for the patients who are still presenting quite sick or still in the hospital dealing with this terrible illness. And, um, you know, Omicron is still in the community. So uh, if, if we put our guard down and, you know, there's some concerns over, you know, Super Bowl and a lot of activity that, uh, that people who are not vaccinated, uh, especially those that are immunocompromised or older, they may get infected and they may end up uh, being hospitalized because of severe disease. It's fascinating how um, many of the wastewater agencies in Southern California, they're participating in uh, having the the um, wastewater sample to determine what the virus levels are. are. And you know, one of the things they found is that you know, with uh, Omicron and COVID-19, that the concentrations are stabilizing in the wastewater, which is just fascinating to me that they can turn that. Another thing they found is is analyzing the wastewater going back to November of last year. They found in a sample from Merced County in, in Central California that there was Omicron found in that sample. That was even before Omicron was named by the World Health Organization. So it's fascinating that this kind of analysis can provide us with more detail than even testing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we we knew from the beginning that Omicron, um, you know, invaded and existed in, in stool specimens. And originally... You know, uh, going back to when we first learned about COVID-19 and SARS-CoV, we were worried about GI manifestations and GI illness as primary presenting symptoms. And we sort of took our eyes off of the gut and we continued to focus on the lungs because that's where the money seemed to be in terms of where the disease was. But now from a surveillance standpoint, what a wonderful tool to be able to monitor, you know, stool samples to get a sense as to whether something's about to come up or not. This is a fascinating, uh, you know, uh, capability at the level of the city and the state to be able to get a heads up on what may be coming because the, it appears that the presence of virus in, in, in uh, sewers precedes presence of disease in the community. So our future may be to monitor the stool far earlier than we monitor everything else. Very fascinating. Yeah, it is. Addie in Pasadena asks, um, uh, says her daughter got COVID in late December, and she continues to test positive on curative tests, but negative on rapid and PCR tests. So she wants to know, you know, what does that mean for her daughter? Um, as long as her daughter is is healthy and asymptomatic, that basically tells us that there's still some viral particles that are left over, and there's some um, particles that's being detected on the tests. Um, you know, part of the issue with COVID and why the testing recommendations were to stop testing once people are better is exactly that. A small percentage of people will continue to have positive tests even though they're not really infectious or shedding live particles or live viruses.
Scott in West Los Angeles emailed us at atcomments at kpcc.org. If the Omicron variant is primarily an upper respiratory infection, would those with prior lung infections such as pneumonia, bronchitis, or valley fever still be at greater risk for serious disease or hospitalization, even though fully vaccinated? Uh, Scott, uh, great question, and the answer is yes. Um, So we know that some patients are at higher risk uh, regardless of uh, vaccinations, and those are uh, the, guy, the, the risk factors that the CDC lists. Uh, chronic lung disease is one of them, obesity, hypertension, heart disease. And so the vaccines are still incredibly effective, you know, some, depending on the study, you know, 85 to 88% reduction in developing severe disease, uh, not 100%. So, our recommendations are still the same. If somebody has chronic lung disease, chronic kidney disease, or older, have significant obesity, those are patients that need to just be far more careful with their activities, be far more vigilant with wearing masks, and being aware of their environment, because if they do become infected, they can become far more symptomatic than the next person. San Francisco has one of the state's highest rates of vaccination and of of booster shots. It's now easing its COVID-19 mask order for gym members who are vaccinated and for office workers. It's going to relax rules requiring proof of vaccination when entering large indoor sports arenas, restaurants, bars and gyms, allowing unvaccinated people to enter if they show proof of a recent negative test. What are your thoughts about the easing of those rules and, and you know, given the decline in cases in San Francisco, does that make sense? Well, you know, public health officers uh, have to make these difficult calls, you know, all the time, that, you know, and they're looking at all kinds of factors, including prevalence of disease in the community and, um, yeah, you know, prevalence of vaccinations and and I'm sure the the you know health officers in San Francisco are making the right call based on all the data that they have, and that'll be the same thing in Los Angeles and everywhere else, where those specialists look at all the data and make the best judgment. Katie in the Miracle Mile District of L.A. emailed to ask, "Are there any new developments on what we know about the prevalence of long COVID in kids?" Nothing that I'm familiar with. Um, we, uh, we did see, you know, more kids, you know, become ill with uh, Omicron. I think that data around long COVID is not quite out yet, but I suspect we'll see more of it since we have far more kids uh, impacted. Now, are kids prone to having long-term symptoms, for example, if they get the flu or thing? Is there a certain subset that, that will, will suffer from um, that as their immune system response, or is this distinct to COVID-19? So, uh, you know, kids with certain immune deficiencies, certain underlying conditions certainly will have a harder time, you know, recovering from certain infections and dealing with it. Um, how long COVID behaves is, is an issue that's still being studied. It's still not 100% clear as to why long COVID occurs and what genetic factors they are and whether those genetic factors are the same as the ones that impact severity of disease or whether there's something different altogether. Because when people have long COVID, we don't see evidence of active infection anymore, but they're still quite symptomatic. We just don't quite know why yet. But data is coming out more and more every month. 
All right. Dr. Torbati, thank you so much for being with us again. We really appreciate you sharing your expertise and all the best to you and your colleagues at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. Thank you much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at LAist.com, at kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.